Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 96, September 1918. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, Nikki and I are going to be talking to author Skip Desjardin about his new book, September 1918, War Plague in the World Series. He takes a deep dive into this one pivotal month when world history was being made in Boston and Bostonians were making history around the world. The cast of characters ranges from Babe Ruth to Blackjack Pershing to E.E. E. Cummings. During our discussion, you'll learn about the Massachusetts National Guardsmen who were the first unit to fight under American command during World War I. You'll hear why 1918 is the only year when the World Series was played in September, and you'll encounter more details about the deadly 1918 influenza outbreak that we didn't discuss last week. But before we talk to Skip Desjardin, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. The Red Sox are front and center in Skip's book, so for our featured historic site this week, we're taking a page out of baseball history. Before the Red Sox were the Red Sox, they were the Boston Americans. And before Fenway Park was built, the Boston Americans, and then the Red Sox, played at the Huntington Avenue baseball grounds. Built on the site of a longtime circus, the stadium was right across the railroad tracks from the South End grounds, home of the rival Boston Braves. When it opened in 1901, the outfield wall at Huntington Avenue grounds was 530 feet from home plate, and that was later expanded to a whopping 635 feet. That's a far cry from the comparatively dinky wall at Fenway, which is just 310 feet from home. The stands held 11,500 fans and additional people would sometimes crowd onto the field, standing around in the patchy grass of the outfield while the game was on. That large stadium capacity came in handy a few years later, when big league baseball began honoring a new ritual called the World Series. The Americans played the first game of the first World Series against the Pittsburgh Pirates at the Huntington Avenue grounds on October 1, 1903, and they closed out the series at the same site, becoming baseball's first world champions. The park was only open until 1912 when Fenway Park replaced it, but in that short time, it was also home to baseball's first perfect game, pitched by Cy Young on May 5, 1904. Today, both the Huntington Avenue grounds and the nearby South End grounds are gone, mostly replaced by the campus of Northeastern University. If you'd like to visit, take the E branch of the Green Line to the Northeastern stop. Walk down Forsyth Street toward Ruggles Station, and on your left, you'll see a campus path called World Series Way. In between Northeastern's Cabot Cage Athletic Facility and Churchill Hall, you'll find a silent bronze statue of Cy Young marking the former location of the pitcher's mound. And if you look hard enough, you can find a flush-mounted plaque where home plate used to be. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a talk presented by our friends at the Partnership of the Historic Bostons on September 12th, at the main branch of the Boston Public Library in Copley Square. The talk's called Desire and the Body of Liberties. Here's how the event page describes it. In 1638, John Winthrop recorded in his diary that upon returning from the West Indies, the Massachusetts ship Desire carried, quote, some cotton and tobacco and Negroes, etc., unquote. Public historian Elon Cook Lee discusses the history and legacy of the first slave ship to enter Boston's waters and explores the lives of the charter generation of Africans in Massachusetts. 
You may recall that back in episode 74, we tried to outline how early Massachusetts moved from enslaving Native Americans captured during wartime to enslaving Africans purchased in the Caribbean. The arrival of the Desire was one of the pivotal events we outlined in that show. However, Elon Cook Lee is the program director and curator at the Center for Reconciliation, a consultant on interpreting slavery and racial identity for historic sites around the country, and a Brown University-educated public historian. She's a certified workshop developer and instructor, a lecturer at the Rhode Island School of Design, and Andrew W. Mellon Faculty Fellow at the RISD Museum. With those credentials, she will almost certainly do a better job interpreting the history around slavery and the desire than your humble hosts did. Catch her talk in the RAB Lecture Hall at the Library Main Branch on September 12th at 6 p.m. And find more of the Partnership of Historic Boston's upcoming Charter Day events at historicbostons.org. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Last week, we talked about the terrible flu epidemic that broke out in Boston in the last week of August in 1918. Before it was all over, 100 million people died worldwide. This week, we're going to talk about the month of September in 1918, when the Spanish flu quickly evolved from a nuisance to the worst pandemic in human history. To tackle this subject, we sat down with Skip Desjardin, who wrote a new book that just came out last week. It takes an in-depth look at Boston and the people of Boston in that pivotal month, with a focus on the 1918 World Series when Babe Ruth led the Red Sox to their last championship for 86 years. On the Yankee division, made up of Massachusetts troops who were among the first to see combat as the U.S. entered World War I, and of course, on the influenza epidemic. We're here today with Skip Desjardin, the author of the new book, September 1918, War, Plague, and the World Series. Skip, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So your new book looks at one month in Boston and in Boston people around the world through the lens of World War I, the Spanish flu epidemic, and the Red Sox. So what inspired you to write this book about September 1918? I read a novel uh, by Dennis Lehane who's a Boston guy, and um, it was called The Given Day. And Babe Ruth is an actual character in the novel. But it's young Babe Ruth. It's 25-year-old Babe Ruth, not fat, pigeon-toed, old newsreel Babe Ruth that we're all so familiar with. And I was struck with that character, the idea that, that he had been one of the great athletes of all time at an earlier point in his life, fascinated me. In addition, another major character in that book is Calvin Coolidge, who was governor of Massachusetts in 1919 at the time that that novel takes place. And my first reaction was, wait a minute, Calvin Coolidge is from Vermont. <laughs> I had no idea that he had been governor of Massachusetts. So he, Lehane, like any good novelist will, had hooked me. Uh, and I also uh, have a family history in that my great-grandfather uh, passed away from the Spanish flu. And so I started to make these connections in my head that, um, you know, here was the World Series taking place in Boston, the oft-discussed and much-written-about uh, 1918 World Series, the last one the Red Sox would win for 86 years. And it was taking place at exactly the same time that this Spanish flu epidemic broke out. 
And the idea that you would gather these big crowds at Fenway Park at exactly the point at which everyone should be staying home and staying away from other infected people also fascinated me. And the more I researched the time period, the more stories I found and the more amazing connections that I found between what was going on across the world and Boston or Massachusetts. And we all grew up knowing that Boston had this nickname for generations of being the hub of the universe. And I began to realize that September 1918 was a time at which Boston actually lived up to that nickname. Can you tell us a little bit about how the political landscape was shifting at that time as all three of these stories are weaving together? Yeah, there is uh, a couple of elements there that I think uh, are really important. One was that the what we would now think of as the majority leader of the Senate um, was Henry Cabot Lodge, Senator from Massachusetts. And in that role, he, you know, it was his job to be the political opponent of the Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson. The leader of the Republican Party in the House was also from Massachusetts, Frederick Gillette. And so here were these two powerful congressional people battling Wilson on every topic of the day. Uh, and so that political dynamic was in full force in September of 1918. Also, this was a, an inflection point in Massachusetts history in which, for the first time, the blue-blooded Brahmin Republican government infrastructure was being chipped away at from the outside, primarily by Irish immigrants. A couple of months after this book, in November at the election, um, the first Irish-American politician from Massachusetts gets elected to the Senate, David Walsh. And so here was the beginning of the change that we now think of Massachusetts as being so solidly blue. Uh, And it had for years and years, generations, been solidly Republican. And so right at this particular period of time, helped along by some of the events that took place in September in 1918, that demographic shift began. So if one of the things that Henry Cabot Lodge is doing during this time is as this sort of leader of the opposition attacking Wilson and Wilson's policies and all these different fronts, that's also happening as the U.S. enters World War I. So how does he go about attacking the president during world wartime while still being seen as, as sort of a loyal opposition? Yeah, it was not meant this way, and I don't mean to take it lightly, but this was one of the all-time great incidences of someone calling someone else's bluff. For years, Henry Cabot Lodge had agitated in the Senate for what he called preparedness. And really, it was a muscular call for the United States to join World War I. Recall that the war had been going on since 1914. And Wilson ran in 1916 for re-election under a slogan of, he kept us out of war. And that just infuriated infuriated uh, Lodge. He believed that the United States should be involved, that 
the Kaiser and Germany were a worldwide global threat. And it angered him that the United States was on the sidelines. Well, Wilson got reelected on that slogan and was inaugurated in March of uh, 1917. And six weeks later, asked Congress to declare war. So and much all, for he kept us out of war. Exactly. And so all of a sudden, Lodge finds himself in the position of having to support the war effort that he had agitated for so long and still find ways to be partisan and oppose a Democratic president. He was definitely on a tightrope. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, how the average American felt about entering World War One, and maybe how they were brought along? Well, as we said, Wilson had been reelected on this gloat that he kept us out of war. And so when he realized that he was no longer going to be able to keep America out of the war, he understood immediately that he was going to have to work harder to change America's mind than he had worked to uh, to convince them in the first place. And with the help of a guy named George Creel, who was a longtime sort of populist politician and uh, political operative, um, he set out to dominate every aspect of American life with a message of the importance of the war effort, the existential nature of the threat, the absolute need for every aspect of society to be geared towards winning the war. In the fall of 1918, no matter where you went, no matter what you did, there was a war element to it. If you went to the theater before the show began, a person, and it was almost always a man, got up and gave a four-minute speech about the war effort. This was an organized program that reached its way down into every city and town in America, where a local prominent person was recruited to be the four-minute man, who gave a short speech on a topic determined by the government that changed every month. Uh about the war effort. And so sometimes at the beginning of church services, almost always at the beginning of a, a theater performance, at every public meeting, whether it was the local city council or the organizing meeting of the Red Cross, you could not escape a four-minute man standing up and telling everybody there how it was their patriotic duty either to buy war bonds or maybe collect peach pits because those were used to make gas masks from the largest, most important topics like funding the war down to the very tiny ones. Um, the government was inventing what we now think of as public relations. Is that the Committee on Public Information? Is that yes. the office that's running this? Yes, it's it, commonly referred to as CPI. And one of, the, one of the people who worked for George Creel was also a Massachusetts person. We think very often in terms of uh, World War I, and, and one of the first things maybe that comes to our head is the famous 
um, I want you, Uncle Sam poster. Uh, the person who ran the poster campaign for CPI was Roger Babson, a financial wizard who lived in Wellesley, but at the beginning of the war, felt that it was his patriotic duty to contribute in some way, and so he went to work for CPI. And there were there was a poster campaign that included not just the artistic famous ones that we know of today, but right down to very small workplace posters that talked about the need for productivity, the need to sort of put aside your own wants and desires for the greater good. Babson's poster campaign expanded to include putting little slips in your paycheck every week with patriotic messages and almost a shame campaign as to, have you donated part of this paycheck to buying war bonds? It was absolutely inescapable. So it's interesting to hear Roger Babson's name pop up in that context. Back in episode 69, I think it was, we had profiled him as just an eccentric millionaire who's obsessed with gravity research and his ties to um, the Babson boulders up on Cape Ann. And I had no idea about his role in essentially as a propagandist for uh, the war effort. Well, he was also a brilliant businessman. One of the things he managed to do at the end of the war was to continue in a private way under a contract with the government to publish newsletters that had been put out by the government previously and somehow managed to come into possession of the mailing lists, <laughs> which he then used to expand his own sort of financial newsletter business. So it was it was patriotic, and yet it was beneficial for Roger Babson as well. I don't think it'll be a secret to any of our listeners who have heard us struggle with sports-related topics before, but neither Nikki or I are really enormous sports fans. But the Red Sox really are central to this book. So I want to sort of recenter us on uh, the opening of the book, which opens up on Labor Day weekend in 1918. And it's a time when the baseball season is coming to a premature end. And there were people who were questioning whether it would ever come back. Why was that? Baseball was coming to a premature end because of the factors that we talked about a minute ago, because the war was so pervasive in society. In May, the government issued what became known as the Work or Fight Order. And it said very simply that every man in America between the ages of 18 and 30 had to either make themselves available for the draft, enlist, or have a job in a specific war industry. And the government was incredibly serious about this. They ran raids around the country. Um, at Between games of a doubleheader in Chicago, they locked the gates to what we now know as Wrigley Field and questioned every single person in the stadium to find out, what's your job? What's your draft status? Are you following this work or fight order? Well, baseball was no exception. It was made up of guys who were between the ages of 18 and 30 in really good physical shape. They were prime candidates to be on the front lines. And they were not farmers. They were not making music, munitions. They weren't in what would be considered a, a war-related industry. Yeah, the argument was that they weren't doing anything to help the war effort. On the other hand, 
the government had specifically exempted theaters and actors and theater workers under the idea that theater was good for morale and people needed some kind of distraction from the war. And so baseball found itself not knowing whether they were like the theater and should be exempt or were not, and their players should be enlisting or ending up getting drafted. They, they worked it out with the government, and the compromise that they came to was the regular baseball season would end on Labor Day. They'd get two weeks to play the World Series. Every other team's players would have to be either working in a war industry or enlisting or being drafted. The two teams in the World Series got two extra weeks. And the Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs were the two teams that were playing in that World Series. It's the only World Series that's ever been played in September. But because no one knew what was going to happen in the war, it had been going on for four years already, no one knew if it would go on for another four. It was accepted that when baseball shut down at the end of the 1918 World Series, it was going to be gone until the war was over. It was not going to come back. And it struggled even in the 1918 season because everyone that we would now think of as a target audience, uh, men 18 to 30, were either serving or working. People didn't have A, disposable income, or B, time on their hands in the middle of the afternoon to go to a baseball game. And they didn't have television to follow along at home or ESPN. Right. And all they could do was pick up the next day's paper and see what the results of the games were. And so baseball found itself in a very precarious position, both during the 1918 season and then afterwards. And there was real question as to whether what we now know as big league baseball was going to be able to recover. What happened to the player contracts at the end of the season? Well, in those days, uh, owners ran the game with an iron fist. Um, Everyone who was not on the Red Sox or the Cubs, on that Labor Day weekend, their contracts were terminated. Uh, It didn't matter that they had a contract that ran through the beginning of October and that they had, you know, four more weeks of pay coming to them. Their contracts were terminated. But that didn't mean that if baseball came back one or two or four years later, that they could just go play for whoever they wanted. The owners had an agreement amongst themselves that even though we've terminated a player's contract, they would still own it. And they would own those players. And the only team those players could come back to play for was the one that held their rights when the deals were terminated. That does not sound like a contract that I would want to be entered into. Well, surprisingly enough, that was the way baseball worked until the late 1960s and the early 1970s. If a team owned your contract, you either played for them at what they were willing to pay you, or you had no other place to go. So the World Series opens early, very early. It opens on September 5th, I believe, after a rain delay. Yep, the first day was rained out, and the games in Chicago were played at Comiskey Field, which was the home of the White Sox, not the Cubs, because it held more people. And in their enthusiasm, baseball thought, well, we need all the seats we can get because everyone's going to want to come to this World Series and we'll sell a lot of tickets and we'll make a lot of money. On the day of the rainout, they discovered when only 50 people showed up at the stadium to buy a ticket, (laughs) that this wasn't going to go the way they planned. 
and that would have ramifications later in the World Series when the players whose agreement was that they would share a portion of the revenue from ticket sales in the first four games of the World Series. By the way, that's still the rule today. Um, only the first four games count towards the player's share because they don't want players to artificially drag a series out to seven games to get more money. Um, but the the players thought they were going to get a minimum amount of money, $2,000 for the winner, $1,000 for the losers. And what they later discovered was that was not a minimum. That was a cap. And low attendance wasn't even going to get them close to that. So before we get to the to the point where the players discover what a bad deal they have, uh, play is opening in Chicago. And like we said, it's before the era of Sox on Fox or ESPN. How were people back in Boston following along with the, the games in Chicago? I, there was uh, there were two ways to do it. One is, it was to simply pick up tomorrow's paper. But you could also follow live. The, the Telegraph was the main means by which word got back to Boston. And around the city of Boston, at bars, at newspaper offices, and there were eight or nine daily newspapers in Boston at the time, they would receive these telegraphs on a pitch-by-pitch basis and put the outcomes up on a big board so that people could see strike one, strike two, player hits a single to left field, and they could follow along on something approaching real time by waiting for the telegraph messages to come in. And a lot of those messages must have been about Babe Ruth because he was really the star, at least of game one of that series. He was. And, and, and as we talked about, he I'm still fascinated by young Babe Ruth. He was one of, if not the best pitcher in baseball. He also was the best hitter in baseball. The American League record at the time for home runs in a season was 11. On June 30th, Babe Ruth had 10. And that was playing part-time because his manager didn't like the idea of him playing as a player and pitching as a pitcher and therefore being every day. You were either one or the other. And that's old-time baseball kind of unwritten rule. And Ruth was having none of it. He just was too good. The old rules just wouldn't apply to him anymore. It didn't make his manager happy. And by the time the World Series came around, um, Ruth was right in the middle of that conflict again. He pitched game one. He threw a shutout. It extended his shutout string that had been going since the 1916 World Series. But in the second game, the manager left him on the bench. You're not pitching, therefore you're not playing. And that came into play in a dramatic way very late in the game when the Red Sox trailed 3-1. to one, But there were two runners on base in the ninth inning. And those people who are baseball fans would say almost automatically, well, if you've, got Babe Ruth on the, <laughs> if you've got Babe Ruth on the bench, you bring him in now to hit. Because with one swing of the bat, he can give you a lead in the ninth inning. And the manager left Ruth, the greatest hitter of all time, on the bench, not once, but twice in the ninth inning. So was this really just a power struggle between the player and the manager, or was there more to it than that? It was 
in a very tiny way about strategy. Ruth was a uh, left-handed hitter, and the Cubs were using a left-handed pitcher. And that's a little bit more difficult for a hitter to 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 bat off of someone who throws the ball with the same hand that you're batting on. Um, and so Ed Barrow, the manager of the Red Sox, had a rationale, which was, hey, I'll play you against right-handed pitchers, but not against left-handed pitchers. But it really was about Barrow believing in the old unwritten rules. He had played Ruth in the field partly because so many players had left the Red Sox and taken a war effort job or enlisted in the service, and he was shorthanded. So he used Ruth reluctantly, but on the big stage, when everybody was paying attention, he just couldn't bring himself to do it. So before we get on the train with uh, the Red Sox to head back to Boston to close out the series, I wanted to mention something that you brought up in uh, the middle of game one. This is an era before the Star Spangled Banner was played regularly at ball games, and actually not not very long after it was adopted as the national anthem. So what happened when the band started playing the national anthem in the middle of the seventh inning? Well, one of the reasons that the Star Spangled Banner wasn't played at games was because there was no public address system and no recorded music. Um, th- there had to be a band on hand in order for any music to be played. And so the World Series was an occasion when there would be a band. And in between innings, to keep fans entertained, and because the patriotic fervor of the war was so uh, invasive in all parts of society, the band struck up the Star Spangled Banner. The Red Sox had a player named Fred Thomas, their third baseman, who had left the team in June and enlisted, but was stationed at the Great Lakes Naval Station in Chicago. And because the rules were a lot more lax about who was on the roster and who wasn't back in those days, he showed up at the beginning of the World Series and said, hey, guys, I've got two weeks leave. I can play. So they put him back on the team. He was playing third base that day. He was standing in the field. But as an active duty sailor, when the Star Spangled Banner began, he immediately snapped to attention and turned towards the flag and saluted. So is this interrupting play, or is this in the bottom of the it, inning? It's between the, between innings. Okay. And other players sort of uh, took his cue and faced the flag, and fans stood up and respectfully listened to the Star-Spangled Banner, and when it ended, broke into a gigantic cheer. Some sports writers said it was the biggest cheer of the day. Hmm. Is that the beginning of this sort of deep connection between the national anthem and baseball. I, I don't think we can, any of us can picture starting a baseball game without the Star Spangled Banner today. It planted the seed, but it would be a while before public address systems were installed in all stadiums. And so while the Star Spangled Banner was played at every game for the rest of that World Series, because owners knew a good thing when they saw it, it went back to being fairly uncommon until World War II. And then the combination of patriotism and public address uh, took hold and the Star Spangled Banner became a staple at the beginning of baseball games and later at the beginning of all sporting events. So Babe Ruth rode the bench for for game two. 
Did I read correctly that he also rode the bench for the, the third game of the series? He did, uh, because the Cubs threw another left-handed pitcher. In fact, over the six-game series, the Cubs only used left-handed pitchers and only used two of them. <laughs> the same pitcher pitched games one, three, and five. A different left-handed pitcher pitched games two, four, and six. They played the entire World Series and only used two starting pitchers. Must have had bulletproof rotator cuffs. Yes. So after game three, both teams are going to head back to Boston to continue the the series for the first time at Fenway Park. But somehow both teams end up on the same train. Can you Can you tell us how that happened and then what sort of goes on on the train during this long ride back to Boston? Again, it's about the war. It's a money-saving move. It's also about resources. Um, train travel was reduced because so many trains, and specifically locomotives, were being used to move war materials around the country. And so regular passenger service was curtailed in some, to some degree. So they just added a couple of extra cars to a regularly scheduled train, and rather than both taking charter trains, sounds like an odd phrase in these days, but uh, they ended up on the same train, which was unheard of. But the two teams sort of mingled and talked to each other. And one of them teams discovered that the other was getting paid all the way till September 15th, plus whatever bonus they were going to get for the World Series. So Red Sox players were going to get paid. Cubs players weren't. And they were not happy about it. And so they marched up to the front of the train and confronted the owner of the Cubs and had a, a fight right there in the, in the middle of the train to say, look, if these guys are getting paid, then we're getting paid. And it began sort of a, a bonding experience between players because it was also on that train that Harry Hooper, who was an outfielder for the Red Sox, began to more carefully look at the paperwork they'd been given about their share of ticket revenue and started to do the math and realize that their expected World Series bonuses of $2,000 for the winners and $1,000 for the losers did not look like it was going to happen. Three games were done already in Chicago, and there was only one more game to go, and it didn't look like there was going to be enough seats in Fenway Park that even if they were all sold, that the players could get to that kind of money. So they immediately demanded to see uh, the commissioners of baseball. It was a three-man group that ran the sport. And the commissioners put them off. Well, we, we really can't talk to you. We really won't know anything until the fourth game. But at best, we'll meet with you when we get back to Boston. The train arrived, and these representatives of both the players and the owners were due to meet at the Copley Plaza Hotel, and the owners didn't show up. So the players knew that they had some problems on their hands in terms of getting paid. But the the other problem that they had was that they knew that public sentiment was not with them. On average, a Major League Baseball player in 1918 made three to $5,000 for the season. Even just the loser's share of $1,000 was the annual income of a factory worker in Boston. So the public didn't want to hear it. 
didn't want to consider that baseball players weren't happy with a thousand dollars, that it wasn't <laughs> enough. Uh, people were struggling financially. They had the relatives and loved ones overseas, and they viewed these healthy men in their prime who weren't fighting and arguing that they deserved more money uh, as very unsympathetic figures. So players knew they were battling both the owners and the public. So now that we're back in Boston, is the flu starting to impact the turnout for the games? No, the flu has begun, but no one really knows it yet. One of the hallmarks of this era was, and part of Wilson's effort to turn all of American society towards the war effort, was the passage of what became known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. And an element of those laws stated that people could be arrested and jailed for criticizing the government or for doing anything that harmed the morale of the public. And newspaper editors especially, uh, in some cases, did get arrested and go to jail. And so other newspaper editors were very cautious and afraid to, to print anything that might be construed as anti-government or harming morale. And so even as the flu began to spread in Boston and surrounding towns, the media didn't cover it. The media didn't talk about it. Because what could be worse for morale than a giant epidemic? And so while the World Series was being played, and it ended on September 11th, the flu was out there, and people were getting sick, but nobody really knew. And so the far bigger effect on attendance at Fenway Park was the lack of young men with money and time to buy a ticket and go to the game. Now, if you did have the money and time to go to, to one of these games, Game 5 was unexpectedly delayed during game four babe ruth had played and it was a little more typical but during game five some of those resentments among the players and management started to bubble back up right it really did so the owners failed to show up at their meeting at the copley plaza they failed to show up for a meeting after game four when their excuse had been we can't talk to you till we count all the money well the four games had been played they'd counted all the money and they still were avoiding the players so the Cubs and the Red Sox did another thing that was sort of unheard of. They met with each other in one of the locker rooms at Fenway Park before Game 5 to talk about, what are we going to do? And they waited and waited and waited for this three-member national commission to show up at Fenway Park so that they could voice their demands. And the commission showed up about 10 minutes before game time. None of the players were in uniform. None of them were warming up on the field. The fans were starting to realize that something's going on. But when the commission showed up at Fenway Park, two out of the three were so drunk they could barely stand up. And so now these frustrated players couldn't even plead their case to someone who could do anything about it. There was an emotional meeting in the umpire's room behind home plate at Fenway Park with the commissioners and a couple of representatives of the players and a couple of members of the press and Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, the former mayor of Boston, was there as well. And 
Harry Hooper of the Red Sox very earnestly tried to make the case that the least the baseball could do was give the players what they had been, what they believed they had been promised. And if they, if the baseball wanted to put in new rules, they should do it after the war. But he was like talking to a wall (sighs) at one point after a long impassioned speech, Harry Hooper turned to the press and said, there's nobody here we can talk to because there's nobody here who can talk. (laughs) So he went back to the locker room and spoke to the Red Sox and Cubs assembled there together and, and said something I think was incredibly interesting. He reminded the players of both teams that if the Red Sox won that day, because they had a three to one lead in the series, the World Series would be over. Red Sox would win, and there'd be no more opportunity to to negotiate for a better payday. Lo and behold, the Red Sox lost in a very lackluster game, which left some questioning how much of an effort they really did put in. So there's a chance that the Red Sox might have tanked Game 5 of the World Series in 1918? There's a chance, I suppose, uh, because Hooper had been so explicit to tell players on both teams if we win, this is all over and we're not getting our money. So the Red Sox lost a very lackluster game, which took the series to game six. And by that point, the players realized they really had no leverage. They really had nothing going for them. They couldn't fight the owners. They couldn't fight public opinion. They sort of dragged themselves to Fenway Park in what was undoubtedly the most joyless ending to a World <laughs> Series ever. The f- stadium was only half full. It was not a very exciting game when it was over and the last out was recorded they just sort of walked off the field and fans sort of shuffled out of the stadium there was no celebration there was no uh what we think of today with you know champagne popping everywhere they just there wasn't even a riot (laughs) there wasn't even even a riot there was these guys faced an uncertain future baseball was over they themselves were subject to being drafted or having to enlist and little did anyone know that it would be another 86 years before the Red Sox would win a World Series and 95 before they'd win one at Fenway Park. Maybe they would have celebrated a little more had they known. Yeah, maybe. So how did some of the Sox stars like a Babe Ruth or a Dutch Leonard spin the war years after the, the 1918 series wrapped up? Well, it was more like the war weeks because the series ended on September 11th. And Armistice was signed on November 11th. But they didn't know that at the time. Officially, the players had until the 15th before their exemption ran out. Uh, As players were leaving the ballpark after the World Series to travel to their homes, because a lot of them did not live in Boston, some went down to the draft board in Boston to register. Others had jobs lined up uh, at different factories uh, near their homes. Uh, Ruth took a couple of days to go uh, judge a beauty contest and a bicycle race at Revere Beach. (laughs) He was not too concerned, apparently. Uh, He eventually took a job, and I put quotation marks around a job, at the Chester Shipbuilding Factory not far from Baltimore, which was his home. It's unclear that he ever actually went to work. He played in one game for the Chester Shipyard team, (laughs) and colder weather moved in, and the Shipyard team season was over, and then the war was over. 
So along with Babe Ruth and the Red Sox, the other stars of your story are the Yankee division, the 26th Infantry. Uh, can you give us an introduction to them and, and tell us a little bit about how they got that name? Yeah, the Yankee division was essentially uh, a unit of the Massachusetts State Militia, what we would now think of as the National Guard. One of the challenges that Woodrow Wilson faced when he finally asked Congress to declare war was that the United States didn't really have a standing army. They had state militias, but they didn't have an organized fighting force of any kind. And so that's why the draft was instituted and so many Americans were subject to it and drafted uh, into the service. But the Yankee division um, named that because almost all of them were from Massachusetts and a, a smaller number from some of the other New England states. Were, was one of the first units to be organized very quickly. They had experience in the Mexican-American War. Largely the same unit had been mustering on occasion as militias did in the day. So they had a, a hierarchy. They were very well organized as a unit. And so they were one of the first American units to head overseas where they served under British or French commanders. But they saw a lot of action uh, over the course of 1918. By September, General Blackjack Pershing had convinced Allied commanders that he needed to concentrate all the American troops in Europe into a single American army and take units like the Yankee Division that had been serving under various generals, make a single American army out of them, and fight as Americans. The French weren't all that excited about that. They didn't want the status quo to change. Uh, but Pershing insisted. And so the very first battle that the American army was to fight came on September 12th, the day after the World Series ended. There was a triangle of land that the Germans and the French had been fighting over back and forth for four years, and the French had been unable to take it permanently. And I think in some ways... Marshal Foch, who was the head of the Allied troops, kind of said to Pershing, okay, you want your own army to fight in a war? Go out and take this piece of land that we've been trying to get for four years. And so what was the importance of this this piece of land, of the salient, as one they might have called it? Yeah, it was, it was called a salient, which, which really translates to kind of a bubble. The, the front line extended for a period of, of miles and then sort of bulged out to the west in kind of the shape of a triangle and then continued as it was. Well, geometry tells you that that means there's far more line for uh, the Germans to defend and the French to attack. It's uh, If you can push that triangle back and sort of pop the bubble, uh, if you're on the Allied side, you can concentrate your forces much more. There's not as many linear miles to have to fight. So the battle plan that Pershing drew up was to put the 1st American Division on one side of that bubble, to put the 26th Division, the Yankee Division, on the other side, and have them try to meet up behind German lines and try to capture all the Germans that were in the middle of that bubble. Before they were actually assaulting into German-held territory, it seemed like there was a very long build-up toward the battle and, and 
trying to maintain secrecy during what was a really protracted buildup. Uh, what was that time like for the, the average American soldier? Taking various American units from all over Europe and assembling them in a single place as a single army was quite an undertaking. It took a long time to move that many troops. And as it happened in the week or so leading up to this battle, it rained almost constantly. And so these units were moving only by night because this was an era before nighttime reconnaissance or satellites, and they could move by night and and be largely hidden from German forces. So they would travel at night in knee-deep mud trying to get to the front lines. Well, it wasn't just knee-deep mud for them. It was knee-deep mud for artillery units and wagons. And this was a period of time when still so much of what was happening in an army was being done by horses and mules. And they were getting stuck in the mud. And so there's this arduous 7- to 10-day period just for the 26th Division to get into position to play their part in the Battle of Samuel. So after all these days of... Actually, nights of buildup, moving by night, staying under cover of trees and darkness. Finally, the 26th is going to be sort of at the tip of the spear as they move out into no man's land. And I think that you said that a regiment of mostly Boston men led the initial advance into no man's land. How, how did the battle itself unfold? Their task was incredibly difficult. As we said, this piece of land had been fought over for four years. Every tree had been long since blown up or burnt down. And across this terrain was a series of trenches and barbed wire, and trenches and barbed wire, so that the Germans, if they needed to, could fall back one trench and barbed wire length at a time. And so the 26th was charged with breaking through that under heavy artillery fire and taking back that land. The advantage that they had, even though they'd been in the field for a good number of months, was that compared to German forces, they were still relatively fresh. These German battalions and divisions that were at this spot were weary and had been beaten down over a four-year period. And here were the enthusiastic Americans very much pumped up by the idea of fighting for the first time as an American army, not just a unit of somebody else's army. Their enthusiasm and their energy was high, and they astounded all the military planners by how quickly they cut their way through the barbed wire, made their way over trenches, and forced the Germans back. They captured thousands of them over the course of the day that they took to reach their destination waited for half a day for the first American army to come from the other side and join them. But it was a great turning point in the war in terms of German morale and German strategy because they had been fighting, as we said, for four long years against the British and the French and the Belgians and the Dutch. But now here was a brand new American army, more than a million men in total, on the battlefield for the first time and making it clear in the very first day that they could take almost any piece of ground that they wanted, even ones that the French hadn't been able to capture for four years. And in many ways, it broke the will of the German army. And it was a Massachusetts regiment that led the way. 
And this is the first war where there's also a battle for control of the skies. And from what I read, that effort at Samuel is being led by a young man from Newton, who's actually descended from one of the heroes of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Can you give us just a brief profile of him? Sure. David Putnam was his name. Uh, He was from Newton. He'd been a star athlete in high school. He'd gone on to Harvard. Um, And in uh, 1916, had come home and said to his mother, I'm getting aboard a cattle ship and I'm going to Europe. There's a war going on and I feel I have a duty to fight. He first joined an ambulance corps trying to contribute and then joined what became the famous Lafayette Escadrille, a French unit of airplanes piloted by Americans. And David Putnam, who, as you said, was a descendant of Israel Putnam, one of the heroes of the Battle of Bunker Hill, became America's ace of aces. We all grew up reading Peanuts comics and seeing Snoopy fight the World War I flying ace, uh, the Red Baron. The title of ace was given to anyone who shot down five enemy planes. Putnam had the title ace of aces because he had shot down more planes than any other American pilot. Having air warfare totally changed war forever. Up until then, it was like a two-dimensional battle. You went back and forth trying to take land or losing land. The introduction of airplanes made it a three-dimensional battle. They could drop bombs. They could do reconnaissance. They could shoot machine guns on troops below them. And whoever dominated the sky, it became clear very early on, had a tremendous advantage in any battle. And Putnam was an incredibly talented pilot, but also a very daring pilot. Many of his shootdowns took place far behind enemy lines. He took chances that no one else took. And on September 12th, he took one too many. Uh, he tried to take on a half a dozen German planes all at the same time. And was shot twice through the heart while he piloted his plane. And died in the midst of this major battle. David Putnam died at the age of 19. He had accomplished all of this and was still a teenager. So at this point in the month, um, we're starting to see connections between the war effort and the beginning of the spread of the flu. And um, it really seems to reach a critical turning point with a Labor Day parade. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we know now how contagious something like the flu is. Uh, doctors were aware of that at the time, but again, there was no knowledge how many people actually had the flu on any given day. So on Labor Day, there was a gigantic parade, which was really just about rallying people to the cause of the war. It was called the Win the War for Freedom Parade. (laughs) It wasn't even called the Labor Day Parade. And it was predominantly uh, floats, marching bands, and factory workers from, say, the Quincy Naval Shipyard and the Chelsea Naval Yards, uh, marching through the streets of Boston. So just as the flu is beginning to break out, thousands and thousands of people cram into the streets, shoved up against each other, breathing the same air, coughing on each other, and generally creating this atmospheric soup of influenza germs. And then they all left the parade and went home to whatever family members hadn't gone to the parade with them. 
and the geometry, the math of the flu epidemic got pushed to a whole new level because each of those people who got infected at the Labor Day parade infected more away from the parade, who in turn infected more. And that's when the epidemic really started to pick up amongst the civilian population. Whereas up until that point, it was mostly concentrated uh, at the Chelsea Naval Yard and at Camp Devens, uh, west of Boston. Now, as it's beginning to spread to civilians, did the wealthy and the poor experience the flu differently in Boston? The wealthy and the poor were just as susceptible. It was a great leveler in that regard. I was interested in in reading lists in century-old newspapers of people who had died, and you would get, uh, this 14-year-old boy from a shoe factory died, and, oh yes, the president of the bank in the same town also died today. Um, No one was immune. However, the wealthier people had much more access to health care. Sounds familiar. And so they could get a doctor to visit them, or they could go see a doctor. Where the flu really was very devastating were in immigrant communities, where people, in a lot of cases, didn't speak the language. They kept to themselves. They were isolated. They may have had their own cultural uh, cure remedies, hang garlic around someone's neck, uh, things of that nature, which had no effect whatsoever. But society was not uh, assimilated. People were very separated out on ethnic grounds. And so in tenements and in poor sections of Boston, primarily immigrant neighborhoods, they did not have access to health care that they needed to deal with this epidemic. And the horror stories that were later told by visiting nurses or social workers who went into those immigrant homes, oftentimes finding very young children dead in the home, but no adult with enough strength to care for anyone else in the home or even to make arrangements for a funeral or a burial. They're devastating stories. Now, what were doctors doing that was effective or having some type of impact? Here again, the war plays a major role. Almost every doctor in America was in the service, either overseas or at a military facility. And so the doctors that remained in society were either were mostly older general practitioners, many of whom had never gone to med school. There was no requirement that said you had to go to med school to call yourself a doctor in those days. And so they kind of were avuncular family friends who had home remedies. They were not scientists by any stretch. The heroes of this period of time were the nurses. Um, There was a great shortage of nurses, but still far more nurses in America than there were doctors. And they stepped up and played a critical role in caring for these, particularly these communities that didn't have access to doctors and healthcare uh, the way wealthier people did. But there was very little a doctor could do. They would basically simply say, stay at home, rest, try to stay away from other people, and try to ride this infection out. The irony of this particular strain of Spanish flu, unlike most flus, which kill the very young and the very old, even today, flu on any given year is the fourth or fifth biggest killer of 
uh, people in the world today. So that much hasn't changed. But what was different about Spanish flu was that it was killing healthy young people. People in their 20s and 30s were far more likely to die of Spanish flu than children or the elderly because this particular strain of flu caused the immune system to overreact. And so the healthier the immune system, the more it filled up people's lungs with fluid in an effort to fight the infection, and the more likely they were to die. Now, do you think that the wartime propaganda and censorship made the epidemic worse than it would have been otherwise? It absolutely did. One of the infuriating parts of my research was to come across William Woodward, who was the head of the Board of Health in Boston, who almost every day in September came out and made a public statement that amounted to nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, everything will be better tomorrow. Day after day after day. And I'm sure that he was well-intentioned. And I'm sure that he was trying to, as so much of society was, keep up morale. And I'm sure he was trying to prevent panic. But people weren't getting the information that they needed. There was a remarkable point in time in which health officials issued a statement that basically said, these home cures like garlic and a poultice that you would mix up and put on someone's chest aren't going to do any good. You need a doctor's care. And then the same health officials, including Woodward, just a couple of days later would give advice like, you know, if you really want to avoid the flu, don't wear tight shoes. <laughs> it's very effective. Yes. So your book is really the story of one month in Boston, the surrounding communities, and then the, the influence of Boston and Massachusetts around the world. It opens Labor Day weekend, and it's bracketed on the other end uh, by some seminal events on October 1st, so as September's coming to an end. And there's this this long section about the fight for the 19th Amendment, the, the Women's Suffrage Amendment. And you introduce a character, uh, Maud Wood Park. Can you tell us a little bit about how who she was and then how she helped kickstart a sort of a stalled suffrage movement? Yeah, Maud Wood Park was uh, a Boston native who had, uh, because she was from a wealthier family, gone first to a private uh, high school, uh, which was, I think today we would call it a finishing school. Um, it was designed to turn young ladies into uh, model wives and housekeepers and homemakers um, and and polite members of society. She went from there to a college that was very much the same. And yet, none of those aspects of her education took. She was incredibly smart, but she came away from that education experience committed to fighting for the rights of women. She joined the women's suffrage movement that had been founded by Susan B. Anthony, uh, went to their national convention in her early 20s and was appalled to find out how unserious the movement had become. One state director gave her annual report in rhyme. <laughs> um, they just, at one point in the book, I say the movement wasn't moving and this made her angry. And so she went back to Boston and recruited fresh blood, 
young women, new people to the cause, and founded a number of social service agencies uh, that were about public health, uh, that were about contraception in some cases, but also very much about the right of women to vote. And she was by far, almost immediately, the best organizer that the women's movement had and understood early on that the key to getting women not only the right to vote, but an expanded set of rights that that she felt they deserved was legislative, not marches, not letter writing campaigns. She had to convince the people who did have the right to vote, men, that they should extend it to women. And so she first began her lobbying efforts in the Massachusetts State House and was so successful that they convinced her to move to Washington and take up the cause of the 19th Amendment. So to push through a constitutional amendment, she needs the U.S. Senate on her side, and her senator is Henry Cabot Lodge. Yep. So how does he receive this this campaigning for a suffrage amendment? Not well. <laughs> um, it, one of the interesting things about women's suffrage was that it was a nonpartisan issue. Lots of Democrats and lots of Republicans were in favor. Lots of Democrats and lots of Republicans were opposed. Lodge was opposed but he couldn't do what he usually did, which was just to whip up his fellow Republicans in opposition. He had to find new ways to sort of gum up the works, at which he was incredibly proficient. Um, But in some ways, a more interesting character was the other Massachusetts senator, John Weeks, who was the last Massachusetts senator appointed by the legislature before the 17th Amendment provided for direct election of senators, and was facing the electorate for the first time come that November. It may not have been the wisest campaign move when he said publicly, I don't care if every voter in Massachusetts is in favor of women's suffrage, I will never vote for it. (laughs) That's definitely a holdover attitude from a time when the senators were appointed. Yes. So, Maude Woodpark needed uh, a two-thirds vote in the U.S. Senate to send the 19th Amendment out to the states for ratification. She believed that she was two votes short. There was a great amount of uh, turnover in the Senate over the course of 1918. Uh, senators, A number of senators died. Others resigned their post to take up military roles. Um, and she was constantly counting votes. So was Lodge. And they were both strategizing as to when this vote should be raised by when each had a one or two vote advantage. The congressional session was going to end. uh, And when it did, she was going to have to start all over again and pass it in a new Congress in the House by a two-thirds majority and then again in the Senate. And so the clock was ticking. At the end of the month, she and other women's movement leaders went to Wilson and said, our only hope of passing and getting the last two votes we need is for you to come to the Capitol and personally speak and lobby in favor of the amendment. And he did. We're used to presidents going up to Capitol Hill to speak, but it's always in the House. There was no joint session of Congress that Wilson was going to address. He just went up Pennsylvania Avenue, went to the Capitol, and walked onto the Senate floor and asked to speak. 
he, there was no guarantee they were going to recognize him and allow him to speak, but they did. And he spoke very forcefully and very passionately in favor of women's right to vote. He, I think brilliantly for its day, uh, framed it in terms of the war effort, like everything else, that women had taken up the mantle of industry and leadership in the United States, and that women were going to be needed as full participants and partners in the administration of the world after the war ended. And he used that as the basis and the rationale for why he was in favor of the amendment. And yet when the vote was taken on October 1st, as you said, they came up two votes short. And it didn't deter Maud Wood Park. She went right back to work in the next session of Congress. And finally, the 19th Amendment was passed and sent out to the states the very next session of Congress. So it's good to know that there is a happy ending coming, even though the book and the the month of September in Boston do end on a bit of a down note, which yes. is appropriate with a hundred million people across the world in the process of being killed by the flu and World War One still raging. So, Skip, we've touched on uh, the three or four main themes of the book, but it has a lot of tendrils that go out in different directions. A, l- a lot of familiar characters and and unfamiliar but interesting characters. Um, who we haven't really surfaced here today. It really was amazing as I began to research September 19th, how many different aspects of American life had a connection to Boston at that period of time. And so over the course of the book, there are more stories about people we all know, like E.E. Cummings, who was serving at Camp Devons in the middle of this maelstrom of Spanish flu, or John Singer Sargent, who was with the Yankee division on the front lines looking for a painting topic that he had been commissioned to do. Calvin Coolidge, of course, lieutenant governor of the state, was in charge of public health because Samuel McCall, the real governor of Massachusetts, was on vacation in Quebec and called in by phone to say, I don't think you guys really need me, so I'm going to stay here. And even Newt Rockney who in September of 1918 had a freshman player from Cambridge on the very first day that Newt Rockney was coach uh, of his legendary career and in the backfield behind Charlie Crowley from Cambridge uh, were two of the legendary names of football, George Gipp and Curly Lambeau. So every part of American society seemed to have a connection in that month to Boston or Massachusetts. But if people want to hear more about those, they're going to have to check out the book, September 1918, War, Plague, and the World Series. Skip, if people want to find out more about you or the book or follow your work online, is there any place they should go to to check that out? The book's available from all the major online booksellers and in bookstores everywhere. You can also go to september1918.com or follow me on Twitter at Skip Desjardin. And I'm tweeting about my real life and about my history life. Well, Skip, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. To learn more about Skip Desjardin and his new book, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 096. We'll have all the information you need to pick up the book, and we'll link to Skip's website and his Twitter. We'll also have information about a couple of his upcoming book events in Massachusetts. And of course, We'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Before we go, it's high time for listener feedback. 
We recently reshared last summer's episode about the time police banned kissing in canoes on the Charles River, and we got a little bit of feedback about it. The Waltham Land Trust retweeted the show and said, Lots of fun history right in our backyard. Meanwhile, listener Mark R. also retweeted it, but perhaps for strictly comedy reasons, because he said, I only retweeted this because the word canoodling is involved. Brian K. reached out about episode 93, saying, It was fun to listen to Hub History's episode on the Fairbanks house as I drove past it. Haven't been inside since I was a kid. Well, now's the time, Brian. Better sign up for one of Curator Daniel's famous ghost tours while there's still time. A couple of folks listened to our episode about Amelia Earhart's time in Boston. M. McCormick commented on the Facebook post saying, This was so interesting, right down to the drainage in her cheek. What I like about this episode is that it made Amelia Earhart real to me. She's so much more relatable. And Dr. Donna S. tweeted, Who knew Amelia Earhart was once a social worker in Boston? Certainly not me. New listener Alex is catching up on some old episodes and got in touch with feedback from episode 69. Just started listening to the podcast over the weekend and really enjoyed it. I live in the South End, so I started with your show with Lauren Prescott. Towards the end of the discussion of piano factories, Nikki mentioned that you were going to link to a description of the piano industry and the sloping floors of a factory. I immediately wondered if it was a link to a post I'd put up on Facebook on this very issue last year. I suspect it is. As an aside, Alex, yes, it was your piece that we linked to. And with that, he did offer a slight correction. As you can see, the piece is about the former Everett Piano Factory at 90 Wareham, rather than the Chickering Factory discussed in the segment. Since I live nearby, I've become quite interested in the fascinating history of piano making in the South End. There were a dozen factories located there, and the history of their development tells us a lot about the history of Boston. Should you ever care to revisit the topic, I'd be happy to chat. Alex, we are certainly going to take you up on that offer, and I'm sure our listeners will be interested in learning more about the history of the piano industry in Boston. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might be able to play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a show called Hunting the King Killers. <clears throat> with a show called Hunting the King Killers. <laughs>